All right, we come this morning, we come now to the preaching of the Word of God. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew 22. And before we read this passage and and dive into teaching uh, this passage, learning this passage, we're going to give thanks to God. We're going to give thanks to the Lord for the privilege this morning of gathering with the saints, of, of gathering around God's word. And we're going to ask for the Lord's help that he would not permit us to gather together in vain this morning, but that he would fill his house with power that he would make it effective, that he would increase our faith, our joy in Christ, that he would magnify the Lord Jesus. Let's ask for that together this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we come now, and God, we do want to thank you this morning for the joy in your house, God. God, thank you for the joy of the gathering together of believers of your church. God, thank you for the joy of celebrating the finished work of Jesus. You are the mighty warrior. You are the Lord, our mighty warrior. And you have conquered our strongest enemy, our sin. And you have cast it into the depths of the sea, never to be seen again. Lord, we celebrate your victory today. God, we give you praise and honor and glory. You've done what no one could do. You've brought about salvation through the finished work of Jesus. God, we ask for your help this morning that that you would help us to love your gospel more than we do. That you would magnify your glory. That you would reveal yourself this morning. That you would help us to give attention to your word. God, we pray for our visiting friends that are here today. God, we pray that you would minister faith to to them this morning, that you would give them a glimpse of eternity and the glory of Jesus, that you would magnify your power as we gather together in your name. And God, we humble ourselves this morning, not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name, give glory, God. Magnify your name, magnify your power, magnify your word. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I want to begin our time this morning with two questions. Number one, how often do you think about eternity? How often do you find yourself pondering the world to come? Not just the things of this life, the the temporal things that are going to pass away. But the world to come, eternity. How often do you find yourself thinking about eternity? And the second question is a follow-up. When you do find yourself thinking about eternity, what do you imagine it to be like? What do you imagine eternity to be like? Now, there is no doubt an eternal mindset is a mark of wisdom as we are pilgriming through this world. In Psalm 90, Moses teaches us that prayer that he prays to God. He says, Lord, teach us to number our days 
that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. That's wisdom in this world is being reminded often that you don't have as much time left as you think you have. So you need to number your days so that you live in this world in a way that makes sense in the world to come. Jonathan Edwards prayed that famous prayer to the Lord when he asked that God would stamp eternity on his eyeballs. That the Lord would help him to live in this life in a way that would make sense forever and ever and ever. That eternity would always be before him. And so there's no doubt that meditating on eternity is good for our souls. And this is true whether you are a believer or an unbeliever. That you need to think often of what Deuteronomy calls your latter end. Of what awaits you after this life, the eternal life, the one that really counts. But just as important as pondering eternity is what you imagine eternity to be like. You see, it is a dangerous thing to dwell, to dwell on and especially to long for a version of eternity that does not exist And many people do this today. They long for an eternity where everyone is blessed and no one is punished. How common is that all around us? You can find yourself longing for an eternity where we get all the blessings we could ever imagine. Reunited with all of our friends. Reunited with all of our pets. As rich as we could ever imagine, as healthy as we could ever imagine for people that ignore Jesus Christ their whole life. Okay? So it's dangerous to dwell and long for an eternity that does not exist. And so we have to be extremely careful that our thoughts of the world to come are not just projections of our own mind but that they're faithful to the teaching of Scripture, that they're faithful to the Word of God. And so I leave that question with you this morning. What will eternity be like? The Bible speaks to us about the world to come in the language of hints and shadows and symbols. In other words, we know things, but we don't know everything. Okay, And that ought to give us Uh, Hope as Christians that we know some things. We know Jesus is coming back. We know as Christians we're going to be with the Lord. And we know we're going to have indestructible joy in the presence of God. We know some things and we should be hopeful about the world to come. But we should also be humble because there's plenty about the world to come, about heaven, that we don't know what it will be like. What will it be like in the resurrection? Jesus deals with a group in this passage that thought they had it all figured out. They had all that boxed up. And we're going to see how dangerous this is. And we're also going to see how our Lord corrects their error in this passage. Let's read God's word together. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 23. That same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, teacher, 
Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Verse 25, Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. Now you'll notice in verse 23 that our passage begins with these words, that same day. And I promise you this, that that was a day, uh, you know, however long these repeated rounds of conflict took on this particular day, that was a day that the opponents of Jesus will never forget. That same day. You've heard of the saying, quit while you're ahead, and that's one thing you've got to learn to do. Another thing you've got to learn to do is quit while you're behind. And, and these men haven't learned that lesson. They've already entered into one round of conflict, and Jesus has shut it down. He's rebutted them, but they keep coming that same day. This is a reference probably to Monday, maybe Tuesday of Passion Week, that final week of Jesus' life. And this day is, is given over to uh, um, a full day of conflict with the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. Now the group that opposed Jesus in the previous paragraph that Ryan taught last week were the Pharisees. But the group that opposes Jesus in our passage this morning is referred to as the Sadducees. Now, these two groups hated each other, okay? But they set aside that hatred for a moment and they united together in their even you know, stronger hatred of the Lord Jesus. And so we see the Pharisees sideline in round one and the Sadducees step up in this next round of conflict. Who were the Sadducees? History tells us that they were a minority group of the Jewish Sanhedrin. That's the high priest and the council of 70 men, 70 elders in Israel. Who, who judicially ruled in Israel and governed the temple. They were a minority on the Sanhedrin, but they were a powerful minority. They were a priestly class. They were a wealthy, rich class of Jews, and that upsized their influence on the Sanhedrin. And you can get a taste of this in Acts 5. Acts 5.17 portrays the Sadducees 
as the right-hand men of the Jewish high priest. The high priest and those who were with him, the Sadducees. Okay? Matthew tells us in verse 23 that they did not believe in a resurrection. And this was the biggest doctrinal distinctive or issue between the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And this is important for you to understand the Jewish climate, the Jewish context in Jesus' day. The rest of the New Testament tells us that their denial went beyond just, I don't believe in the resurrection. And they actually uh, didn't believe in anything that they couldn't see, touch, and investigate. This is a lot, a lot like rationalist or materialist that we would refer to today. Listen to Acts 23, verse 8. It says this. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirits, but the Pharisees Acknowledge them all. And so these men are the anti-supernatural wing of the Jewish Sanhedrin. If I can't smell it, taste it, touch it, investigate it, I don't believe it. No resurrection, no angels, no spirit, no no nothing. Okay, We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Now, this might surprise... Us, as we read, you know, our New Testament and we see this debate, you're like, what do you mean they were Jews, but they didn't believe in the resurrection? And the reason this is surprising to us is that the Old Testament so clearly teaches this doctrine. Let me give you a a taste of this um, and several different Old Testament books. As early as Job... The writers of the Old Testament expressed their hope in life after death. They they never believed that you die and that's it. Job uh, expressed his hope in the resurrection. Listen to Job 19. He says this. I know that my Redeemer lives and at last he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been destroyed in my flesh... I shall see God. I mean, it's just as clear as it could be. After I die, I'm going to stand in my flesh and I'm going to see the Lord. I'm going to see my maker. David also expressed his hope in resurrection from the dead. In the Psalms, you see this especially. Psalm 16, verse 10, David says to the Lord, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. He says it again in Psalm 49. God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. And so the resurrection is not just New Testament hope. This has always been the hope of the people of God that our relationship with the Lord, it's not going to be terminated by death. We're going to be ransomed from the power of death. Isaiah expresses his hope in the resurrection from the dead. I mean, this is explicit. Isaiah 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. Daniel, probably the most explicit in all the Old Testament, expresses, prophesies the resurrection from the dead. And not just a resurrection of 
believers. There's also going to be a resurrection of unbelievers. The wicked will also be raised, stand before God and face judgment. Daniel 12, verse 2 says this, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, but some to shame and everlasting contempt. Explicitly prophesies the resurrection from the dead. Now, as our tennis folks say, that should have been game, set, match, done, over, debate over. Okay? But there's another thing you need to understand about the Sadducees is that they only held to the first five books of Moses, the Torah, as the authoritative books that governed Jewish doctrine. Okay? And so they rejected the later writings of the prophets, which would be everything that we just read, and they rejected the oral tradition of the Pharisees. So this is another distinguishing feature of this group that opposes Jesus. So to recap, who are the Pharisees? They didn't believe in the supernatural and they viewed themselves as skeptics standing over the scriptures. And what I mean by that is they viewed themselves as skeptics over the Bible instead of submissive under the Bible that anything in the Bible that contradicted what they believed, they just discarded it. You ever met anybody like that? That anything in the Bible that would change the way they think, they say, oh, that's an error. There's no way that can be, you know, authoritative. That's an ancient, deceptive way of handling the Word of God. They were anti-supernatural and they were skeptics towards the Scriptures. Now, I hope you realize that their descendants are all around us, okay? I don't mean their physical descendants. I mean their spiritual, theological descendants are all around us. And we, and we, and we encounter this often. The anti-supernatural rationalist who views everything in terms of this world. You die, and you die, and that's it, and there's nothing else. End of story. Those are the materialists. No grid for the power of God and something that they can't understand. I remember a man telling me one time that he didn't believe in anything he couldn't see and touch. Nothing, he said. And, and I remember asking him an immediate question. I asked him if he believed in love. So you don't believe in anything you can see or touch. Do you, sir, do you believe in love? You see, if you're a materialist... You really do have to make a choice. You have to follow your ideas, your convictions to their logical conclusions. Okay? Ideas have consequences in God's world. You can't have false ideas without those false ideas harming you or harming others. And so you're a materialist and you really do have to face the reality of that question. Do you believe in love? You could ask this to a parent, and the, and the choice basically comes down to this. Do you tell your little girl that you love her, on the one hand, that you love your little girl, or do you tell your little girl 
that you are having pleasant chemical reactions in your brain towards her. Which one is it? You see, ideas have consequences, and you have to take this stuff to its logical conclusions. Now, if you were a young lady, okay, and you aspire to be married and find a godly man one day, you see how important this stuff is, okay, of marrying in the Lord, of finding a, a spouse that loves the Lord Jesus and submits to the Word of God. Imagine being married to a materialist, that all you are to them is the object of chemical reactions in their brain, and that's it. Because he doesn't believe in anything he can't see or smell or taste or touch or investigate. And so we have these anti-supernaturalists all around us today. And then there are the rationalists, especially the Christian version of rationalists, who believe that the Bible is this mythological book, but there's some really good principles to apply to your life in there. Okay? This is total doublespeak. That everybody knows the Bible is, you know, mythology. Uh, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that Mahatma Gandhi did with Jesus. Oh, Jesus is a great moral teacher. Okay, but he's not the son of God. I mean, come on, he's not the son of God. Okay? And so the rationalist approach, the Christian rationalist approach to the Bible is to demythologize it, to get everything out of it that doesn't make sense in our modern world, can't possibly be true. Things like resurrection miracles, and especially today, God's word on hot-button social issues like homosexuality, that couldn't possibly be true today. But there are some great spiritual principles to apply to your life. There's a hugely influential New Testament scholar. He died in 1975. His name was Rudolf Bultmann. He was a German New Testament scholar. There are many in this realm. Theological liberalism has been exported to every corner of this world. But he took this approach, and there are many like him. Here's a quote. He says, we cannot use electric lights and radios, and in the event we get sick, avail ourselves of modern medicine and clinical means, and at the same time believe in the spirit and wonder world of the New Testament. That's, that's one of the most influential New Testament scholars of the last 150 years. And he died a blasphemer because this was his approach to the Bible. I sit over the Bible and I judge there's no way this stuff can be true. But this other stuff over here, it's got some good things to apply to life. Now, the descendants of the Sadducees are all around us, skeptics towards Scripture, skeptics to the Word of God. So with this unbelieving worldview, this group of opponents, the Sadducees, they come to Jesus and they ask Him a question, and they're trying to do two things at the same time when they approach Jesus with this question. Number one, they're trying to get Jesus to publicly declare which side He's on, you believe in the resurrection or do you not? Are you with them or are you with us? So that's, that's uh, you know, aim number one. 
But what they're really after is aim number two, that when Jesus declares that he does believe in the resurrection, they frame the question in such a way to scorn the doctrine of resurrection as completely ridiculous. Okay, that's, that's the framework here. In terms of logic, if you've ever taken any logic courses, they attempt what is called a reductio ad absurdum. Okay, if you ever heard of that phrase before, they reduce an idea down to its simple core and then they try to take that idea to the logical conclusions to show how ridiculous it is. That's that's the framework behind this question. They see an opportunity to show how absurd the doctrine is by appealing to an Old Testament command dealing with what is called leveret marriage. Okay? And I want you to turn this morning to Deuteronomy 25. They, they quote a portion of this passage. And let's learn and remind ourselves what God's word says about this institution. Deuteronomy 25 verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son... The wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed in the name of his dead brother. That is, that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then... His husband's his his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull off and pull his sandal off of his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who would not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandals pulled off. And so this command in the Old Testament was about raising up offspring for your dead brother. Okay? And the reason why this seems so weird to us, so strange to us, is that we live under a different covenant. Okay? In other words, God's purposes as we go from Old Testament to New Testament, they shifted. They've been transformed. God's Old Testament purposes have been fulfilled. And one of the fundamental shifts as you, as you shift from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant is the focus on the Old Covenant is on the physical seed of Abraham. The physical offspring of Abraham, the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. And then when you go, when you transfer to the new covenant, the focus is on the spiritual offspring of Abraham. And so there's a fundamental shift. And this is the reason why we are no longer under this institution. God is no longer 
about uh, populating, you know, literal uh, Jewish tribes today. Okay, that stuff has been put away. We live in what Galatians 4 calls the fullness of time. Jesus has come. And now the focus is on the spiritual children of Abraham. And so even though we are no longer under this Old Testament command, we understand it. Okay? In other words, if that is God's purpose in the Old Covenant, to build out this nation to make sure that this tribe's inheritance doesn't fall out of place, then we understand why God put this institution was to raise up offspring you know, on behalf of this dead brother. It was a protection to the woman. It was also a protection to the man who died childless. So that's lever at marriage. The Sadducees see in that command, in that institution, they see an opportunity to construct this hypothetical example that they're going to use to spring on Jesus to show how absurd the doctrine of resurrection from the dead truly is. And their question is formed in such a way that if this institution happens seven times over, you know, one brother childless, another brother childless, seven times over and then the woman dies, they, they, they portray that the logical implications of the resurrection would that this one woman would be eternally the wife of seven men. Look how absurd that doctrine is. Okay. Now, to appreciate Jesus' response, you have to understand that this was not a sincere question. Okay? This was a setup question. And you need to understand that there are two categories of theological questions. A lot of theological questions are sincere, where people come and they, they might ask you sincere questions about, I want to know what God's Word says about this. I've always heard it this way. I've heard some people say it this way. What does the Bible really teach? That's a sincere question. This is not that. There are also set-up questions where somebody asking those questions has no good faith desire to know what God's word really teaches. All they want to do is use this you know, question as a way to, to, to frame how you know, ridiculous you are for disagreeing with them. And the reason why you need to be able to distinguish between good faith questions and gotcha questions is that they, they, they aren't responded to the same way. Okay? Every parent in the room, if you thought about it long enough, could figure out there are two categories here. You know, when your children ask you why, there's a lot of different contexts where that question is sincere. They want to understand, uh, you know, uh, why, why do we do it this way? You know, we, we always do, why are the rules this and not this? There's a lot of examples of sincere but as a parent, you can also think of situations where that why question was a why of rebellion. Okay? It wasn't as sincere. It was a why of, or why should I do that? You know, and this is where the ancient proverb was coined, because I said so. That's why you should do that. So every parent has a grid for these two different types of questions. And we need the help of the Holy Spirit to discern what kinds of questions we are being asked. Because they require different responses. Okay? You don't answer a setup question in the same way you answer a sincere question. 
Okay? And you're going to see Jesus uh, uh, respond in kind to this set-up question. Notice in verse 29. Get there. Matthew 22, verse 29. Jesus answered them, and he said this. You are wrong. Stop right there. We are living in an age where it is increasingly labeled as intolerant to ever say those words to anybody about anything. And I just want you to observe that the first words out of the gate to this setup question is Jesus clearly articulates, okay, you are wrong about what you are assuming in this question. You are wrong. He doesn't say, guys, I appreciate your perspective. I'm thankful for your perspective. I'm thankful for you weighing in. Uh, He doesn't say, uh, friends, good men disagree on this doctrinal issue. You know, some people, there's no third way-ism here. Some people say this. Other people say this. I'm kind of in the middle here. Look at what he says. The sinless son of God says you're wrong about this doctrine. You're wrong about this theological issue. And what I want to remind you as disciples of Jesus who want to be like our Lord, conformed into his image, is I want to encourage you, don't aspire in your life to be so winsome that you fail to draw clear lines around God's truth. Don't aspire to be so winsome that you actually become vague when you speak about doctrine and about God's truth. He said you are wrong about this. You're wrong. Okay. He goes on to say in verse 29 that they are ignorant of two things. He says you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. Their most fundamental error was that they presumed life in this world was everything that there was. Okay? They had no faith in what they could not see. They were ignorant of the power of God. And that unbelieving heart, that unbelieving worldview was transposed on the way that they read and interpreted the Bible. That heart of unbelief led them to that second error. They were ignorant of the scriptures because they were ignorant of the power of God. And you need to be warned by this. You will never know the God of the Bible if you approach his word with a heart of unbelief. You will never know him. If you approach God like a math problem that you just beat on until you figure it out, you'll never know the Lord. You'll never know the Lord. He never bows to your human intellect. We approach God, we know God through faith. Okay, through faith. This has to be the governing approach to the Bible. Be warned about the Sadducees. Who were these men? They were studied men. They were the scholars in Israel. And just ponder that for a moment. There's probably some 40-year-olds in this crowd that Jesus is 
speaking, probably some 60-year-old Sadducees in that crowd that Jesus was speaking to. How many hours do you think that they studied the Torah scrolls in their life? I mean, you think about, some of you have been in your profession for 30 years and you could do your job blindfolded. I mean, you got decades of doing this stuff and it just becomes ingrained in who you are. That was their job to study the Bible. They were the scholars in Israel. How much of the Torah do you think they memorized? The whole thing is the answer. All five books of Moses. And Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures. They had PhDs in unbelief because their worldview didn't account for the power of God. The unexplainable, untamable power of God. There's one thing we can learn from this. Everybody has a center of gravity. You could call it your epistemological foundation. Why you believe what you believe. Everybody has one. And at the end of the day, it's one of two things. Your center of gravity will either be your own understanding or faith in the word of God. That's it. That's it. You see, some people approach the Bible with their own understanding as the center of gravity. And they'll believe everything in the Bible that makes sense to them. I'll study it. If it makes sense to me, I'll believe it. I'll apply it to my life. But if it doesn't make sense to me and I can't fully understand it, I reject it outright. And I'll discard the rest. The other approach, the Christian approach, is the center of gravity is faith. Will you live... You know, in this world, wandering through the fog of human opinion, or will you live trusting in the eternal word of God? Whatever God says in his word, we believe it. End of sentence. Even the things we don't understand, we believe it. Why? Why would we believe things we don't understand? Because God is wiser than we are. He's infinite. We are finite. He's when the When the infinite God speaks to us, what is the rational response? It's to believe him. Whatever my God says is true. It's not that God's word ever contradicts itself. It's it's not that God's word is ever irrational. It's that God's truth surpasses human understanding. Always has And always will. Why? Because God is infinite. And we are finite beings. And so the Christian approach is faith seeking understanding. Not the other way around. Understanding seeking faith. I believe everything I can understand. No, the Christian approach is we settle this on the front end. God is God. I'm not God. He's wiser than me. I'm prone to foolishness and error. God is truth and in him is no lie. And whatever my God says is right. It's true. We just sang that to the Lord. I mean, Jake's on a roll the past several weeks in these these song choices. We sang uh, how firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord. God has laid up for us in his excellent word. That is our foundation, not the things we can understand. 
But the word of God, God has spoken to us from another world. Eternal words from God. That's the Christian foundation. Now, we don't want to be immature. We want to study the Bible. We want to grow in our understanding of why things are so. We want to understand as much truth as we can. We even want to wrestle with God's truth. We don't want to be immature. But we settle this on the front end. Whatever he says, I believe it. Whatever he says, I believe it. We have to approach God's truth with humility. With this acknowledgement that he is God and we are not. This is why at Grace Community Church and every single faithful local church all across the world. That when God's word contradicts something that we're hearing in this world. God's word wins every single time. Our foundation, what we yield to, our anchor is the word of God. I want to warn young people, you especially, are going to be tempted in this area. There's going to come a time in your life where you're going to have to decide for yourself, am I going to live on the foundation of my peanut intellect, my finite understanding of God's world, or am I going to bow before God in wisdom and in humility that I'm going to build my life on the eternal word of God? I'm going to live by words from another world. I'm going to stake my soul on it. I'm going to believe everything that my God says. You're going to be tested in that. And most likely you're going to be tested in that over and over and over again in your life. Human opinion or the word of God. Jesus answers the setup question in verse 30. He says, in the resurrection. Now that's an awesome thing just there. Is he's not talking about the act of resurrection. But he's talking about resurrection as a state that we enter into after we're raised from the dead. In other words, one of the ways that you could describe heaven or the life to come is in the resurrection, brothers and sisters. In that state, and it's not like this one. That's how transforming that one act is of our God of raising us from the dead. That everything after that can be called in the resurrection. In the resurrection, Jesus says... They neither marry, nor are they given in marriage, but are like the angels. He points out that the Sadducees are the ones who have made an error in logic. They have presupposed that the resurrected state, if we, are, if we come back to life after we die, they presuppose that that resurrected state has to be one-to-one correspondence with our state right now. That life has to be like this life. And if you have a wife in this life, then of course she's your wife in that life. They have failed to account for the power of God that transforms everything. In the resurrection, the power of God will transform everything, even marriage. Even marriage. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. Jesus then deals with theology behind the question. So he, he, he dealt with their error on applying Deuteronomy 25. And then he gets to the theology behind it that they don't believe in the resurrection. And I want you to notice that Jesus grounds 
his response in verse 31, his proof for the resurrection in Exodus 3. Okay, that's the, the portion of scripture that he quotes in verse 32. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So, he, so Jesus um, responds to the Sadducees by quoting Exodus 3. And this is a foundational passage in the books of Moses where God reveals his name to Moses at the burning bush. God didn't reveal that name to you know, those before Moses and, and God reveals his covenant name to Moses. I am is his name. I am who I am. And we refer to that today as Yahweh, uh, a shorthand for I am who I am. And so foundational passage, no doubt. But there are a lot of places in the Old Testament that teach the doctrine of resurrection way more explicitly than uh, the divine name. And we just read about five or six uh, of them together. And so think for just a moment, why did Jesus quote this text and not one of those other texts? And almost certainly the answer is that he was beating them at their own game. Jesus doesn't appeal to the books that they rejected. He goes right to the books that they say, this is our authority, the words of Moses. And he tells these men, have you not read Moses? And then he quotes Exodus 3, verse 6. Where the divine name is revealed by God. One of the most important passages in the whole Bible. And Jesus says, have you never read this passage? Have you never read it? The argument is this. Jesus appeals to the name of God. I am in that passage. And the verb tense that's implied in the Hebrew in, in, in Exodus 3 is I am. And the whole argument is based on that tense of verb. Not I was, but I am. And so God reveals himself as the I am. And then he says, I am the God of, of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. And I am the God of Jacob. Not I was Abraham's God. I was Isaac's God. I was Jacob's God, but I am. And the inference that our Lord draws from the divine name is he's still their God. Now do just a little bit of chronology. That's over 400 years have passed since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have died. And God says in Exodus 3, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. And they've been dead 400 years. God, don't you mean you were their God? And this is Jesus' whole argument. That they're still in relationship with him. He's still their God. They still belong to, to him and he's still their God. And that presumes that their earthly death didn't terminate their relationship with God. It wasn't, I die and there's nothing else after that. God's name presumes that he's still in relationship with his servants. Which means that there is life after death. That's the whole argument. Which means there is a resurrection. From the dead. Now one aside that I want to point out. And I want to encourage you to make note of this. Every time you see it in the Gospels. Is Jesus' doctrine of scripture. That's a wonderful thing to, to ask and answer. And to get really firmed up on. 
is what did Jesus believe about the Bible? Because once you answer that question, then you lock in the bounds of what every follower of Jesus has to believe about the Bible. You understand? Jesus' doctrine of Scripture. And you could say it the opposite way. There is no such thing as a disciple of Jesus who has a different doctrine of Scripture than Jesus had. You can't be smarter than Jesus. He'd be your disciple. You wouldn't be his disciple. Do you see how the argument works? So note this morning Jesus' doctrine of Scripture. Notice in verse 31, when Jesus says, Have you not read? And then he quotes Exodus 3. He says this, Have you not read what was said to you by God? Now, I want to spend just a moment on this point. There were a thousand years between Exodus 3 and this New Testament conversation that's happening between Jesus and the Sadducees. Okay? A thousand years that those words were revealed in Exodus 3 to Moses and then written down, translated, passed down, generation, generation, went from Hebrew then to, then to Greek. I mean, you got a millennia and a millennia later, a thousand years after God, through, through Moses, inscripturated these words, Jesus is commenting back on this. And notice that Jesus believes that reading the ancient book of Exodus is not merely reading human words, religious folklore, stories that have been passed down, mistranslated, and corrupted for centuries... He takes a thousand-year-old document, and he's not merely reading it as the words of Moses. Jesus says, when you read Exodus 3, God is speaking to you. That is the doctrine of Jesus. That's what Jesus believes about Scripture. Don't ever believe the false dichotomy that you can separate God from his word. Don't ever believe that. Sometimes you hear this label thrown around about, oh, yeah, that group over there, they're bibliolatry. Uh, they're bibliolaters, you know. And, 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 and that is just fundamentally backwards. Okay? And, if you, and, and if you think that way or you've ever said that, that would be a good time to repent and get this right. Okay? It is impossible for you to esteem God's word too highly. Impossible. Okay? I don't know anybody in the history of the Christian church that literally bows down to the Bible. Never happened before. What that label is used is, is to, to you know, throw shade on a group that loves God's word. That highly esteems God's word and God forbid obeys God's word. Don't get caught in this false dichotomy. Remember always what you do with the Bible is what you do to God himself. There's always a connection there. When you obey the Bible, you obey God. When you disobey the Bible, you disobey God. When you believe the Bible, you believe God. When you disbelieve the Bible, you disbelieve God. When you honor the Bible and tremble at God's word, you honor God and tremble before him. What you do with the Bible, you do directly to God. Why? Because the Bible is the word of God. 
Your doctrine of Scripture is always connected to your doctrine of God. Now, there's a huge difficulty in this passage that you're thinking already, especially if you're married. Uh, Wait a second. I understand that. Marriage is temporary. There's no marriage in heaven. But there's some problems here, you know, to work through. Wait a second. Are you saying, you know, that I won't be with my spouse in heaven, that I won't love my spouse in heaven? So there's some difficulty here that I want to spend the rest of our time unpacking. I want to make four points. And these would be some really good talking points to talk about with others maybe this afternoon, especially your kids. Uh, This is what God's word says, and this is not what it says. Okay, so a lot of reconnaissance work to do this afternoon. Okay, this is what it says. This is what it doesn't say. Number one, in the resurrection, marriage will be transformed. Marriage will be transformed. And what I mean by that is we know from God's word why God gave us marriage. We know that it's a good gift from God, but we know why he gave it to us. And so I want to mention four purposes for marriage that we uh, have from Holy Scripture. And I want to show you how each of those four purposes are fulfilled as we enter into that resurrected state. And this is important to get this groundwork. It's not just arbitrary that there's no marriage in heaven. There's a fittingness to it. Okay. Number one, marriage was given to us as a good gift of God for procreation. This is God's means for populating the earth. And we get that purpose for marriage in the first chapter of the Bible where Adam and Eve are told to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. Okay? Malachi tells us that you know, God's purpose in this union between the man and the woman is godly offspring, godly seed. And part of understanding, you know, Jesus presenting marriage to us is no longer required in heaven, is the assumption that this function of marriage will no longer be needed in that new economy. There will no longer be that need to procreate and to to be fruitful, to to multiply and to fill the earth. Number two, second purpose for marriage And you see this again in the first chapter of Genesis is mission. Marriage has a mission from the very beginning. It's not just be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. God goes on to say, and take dominion. They were given that charge to to take dominion in God's name over everything that God had made. And so there's a a mission that that the man and woman are sent to accomplish on behalf of God. And again, Jesus' answer assumes that when we enter the resurrection, there's nothing to take dominion over anymore. The last enemy has been destroyed. All the enemies of our Lord have been placed under his feet. Third purpose of marriage, again, we get this one in Genesis 2, is for companionship. God says in Genesis 2, it's not good for man to be alone. This is why God made a helper fit for Adam. There's a companionship function in marriage. And this one is the most difficult for us to grasp. 
But Jesus' answer here assumes that in heaven, that need for communion to not be alone will be fulfilled more than we can ever imagine. That we'll enter into a state where that need that we have as image bearers of God will be so satisfied in something besides marriage. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And then number four, God's purpose for marriage is a mystery. In other words, it was a sign that God allowed to be propagated in this world, a picture that the Apostle Paul says points to Christ and the church. And you see this in Ephesians 5. That union, that covenant union between one man and one woman is supposed, for through all of human history, it was supposed to paint a faithful picture of the covenant union between Jesus Christ and His bride, the church. And again, Jesus' teaching here assumes that in the resurrection, when we enter into that resurrected state, that mystery will be fully revealed. It'll be taken to the telos, the, the purpose that God created marriage for, and, and the sign will give way to the thing that is signified, our union, our eternal union with Jesus Christ. And so Jesus' teaching is that marriage will be transformed. He's teaching that marriage is temporary, but let's say a couple of things that he's not teaching. Jesus is not teaching here that the love that we have for our Christian spouse is temporary. He's saying that that marital, physical aspect of our relationship with our spouse is temporary. Not the love that we have for our spouse or for any other Christian is temporary. In fact, God's word says the opposite. Love abides forever. This is 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. So he's teaching that marriage is temporary, not love. And he's teaching that we're going to have something better, not something less. And this is the thing that you really got to drive home. Okay, Think addition, not subtraction. Okay, And you're going to be behind this if you get this wrong. Jesus is saying we get this really good gift in this life and then boom, it's gone and we enter into resurrection state. He's teaching that marriage is going to be transformed into something else, something better. Our heavenly relations with our spouse won't be less than marriage, but more than marriage. Earthly marital love for Christians will give way to eternal heavenly love. And maybe the most unexpected or surprising aspect of this teaching is that we are left to conclude that these aspects of our relationship with our spouse, they won't be missed at all. In other words, this, this is not going to be something that you lament and mourn for millions of years, okay? So not only are they going to be transformed into something new, something better, we won't miss it at all because of the surpassing glory of the resurrection. And this is amazing. It's one thing to, to know that there will be no sexual love in heaven. That's one thing. It's a whole nother thing to know that we won't even miss it because we will be in the presence of our God. That's how satisfied 
we're going to be is that even the good gifts, even the best of God's gifts like marriage will be transformed into something better and they won't be missed. Number two, we have a limited perspective that should give us hope and also make us humble. We said this at the beginning. We should have hope in the resurrection because we know some things. God has spoken to us. We're not wandering through the fog here. We got words from God about the resurrection and being with the Lord. And we should be hopeful. But we should also be humble. Because if you're honest, you don't know what it's going to be like to be alive in the world to come. There's no one here this morning that knows what it's like to be an angel of God. There's a mystery to it. We know some things and there's a lot of things that we don't know. It should make us humble. There's no doubt here Jesus is teaching that something better awaits us as Christians. But it's also mysterious to us. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes crossing this resurrection gap. With these words, it's a transition from the natural to the spiritual. It's a transition from the perishable to the imperishable. It's a transition from the mortal to the immortal. Indescribable glory awaits all who trust in Jesus Christ. And our minds can't fully comprehend it. The the glory that God has prepared for those who love him. Number three, part of the Christian hope is being together with the Lord. This is part of the way Paul tells us to encourage each other when someone dies in the Lord. First Corinthians four says, encourage one another with these words. Well, here's part of these words. The Lord himself will descend. We, plural, will be caught up together, together. To meet the Lord. And so we, corporate, will always be with the Lord. Part of our Christian hope is the comfort of knowing that we're going to be reunited with our Christian spouses, our Christian children, our Christian family, our Christian brothers and sisters. We're going to be together with the Lord. And that's a great hope to us. And God's word says, comfort one another with these words. We don't grieve like the lost world grieves. We got words from God. We got promises. The Christian hope is corporate, not just individual. And so it's wrong to understand Jesus' words as though Christian husbands and Christian wives will be separate forever. No, we will be together With the Lord. Number four. But our deepest longing. And Jesus' teaching pushes against idolizing marriage. It really does. Our deepest longing is is not to be reunited with our Christian partner, our Christian spouse, or our Christian family. Our deepest longing is to be with the Lord. The Bible says for the Christian that to depart from this world is to be with Christ. Philippians chapter 1. Paul also says to be absent from the body is to be present with 
the Lord. And even that emphasis of 1 Thessalonians 4 that we just referenced, the emphasis of that passage is not that we will be together, but that we will be together with the Lord forever. We will see Jesus. We will see Jesus. Mankind is hardwired to think about life after death. We just are. Human customs from the, you know, the beginning of time. You can see this in burial rituals where Pharaoh is buried with you know, all of his uh, toys, all of his gold. Why? So that he can have it in the afterlife. We're hardwired to think this way. The Muslim hope is fundamentally different than the Christian hope. If you are a diligent enough Muslim, maybe in the afterlife you can have 72 virgins presented to you by Allah. The Christian hope is different. We will see God. We will see His face. We will see Jesus. And please talk to your children about this. they got so many questions about what is heaven going to be like. Is so-and-so going to be there? Is so-and-so going to be there? And talk to them about all that. But make sure they understand heaven is a place where we see Jesus. We, we are with the Lord. The glory of heaven is not just your spouse may be there. But that we will be with the Lord. You could say it this way. You could summarize Jesus' teaching. 